This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, the Australian of the Year wants to end dangerous hang-ups about our bodies. She says it's a health emergency for children. Also, the Government Advisory Body on Immunisation urged to give the go-ahead for the new generation of COVID shots. We're wearing our immune systems all the time like a life jacket, but if they're not inflated, they're not going to be much use if a big wave hits us. We just want them to live up to their promise to leave no one behind. We're going to hold them to that promise. And after another troubling surge in prices, there's a case for the Reserve Bank to deliberately cause a recession with even harder interest rate hikes. What we must avoid is allowing inflation to be entrenched for the economy to burst back to life and push inflation up again in the year's time. And for interest rates to go up two or three percentage points from here, that would all but ensure a deep and damaging recession. The new Australian of the Year, Taryn Brumford, is on a mission to stop children hating their bodies, going so far as to call the problem a paediatric health emergency. The South Australian body image activist and documentary maker has been campaigning on what she calls body positivity for a decade. Some health experts say recognition of the problem is long overdue, with children as young as six being diagnosed with eating disorders. Gavin Coote reports. In the age of social media and wall-to-wall advertising of new fitness and diet fads, it's a tricky time for many to maintain a positive attitude about their body. My kid definitely um, is a little bit overweight than what he's meant to be. Yes, for now, but then I still go to the gym to like keep it like more fit than yesterday. So yeah. If you had one word to describe your body or how you feel about it, what would you use? Jolly, chunky, I don't know. There's people out in the world, they really need to start exercising and looking after their bodies. It's some of these attitudes the new Australian of the Year, Taryn Brumfit, wants to tackle head on. The mother of four is frightened by how many of the messages from the diet and cosmetic industries and on social media are affecting young people. Yeah, look, it's really um, saddening to know that 70% of Australian school children consider body image to be their number one concern. Um, We also know that adolescents who are dissatisfied with their bodies are 24 times more likely to develop depression and anxiety. So I think, you know, for a decade now, I've been in the space of working with body image um, and trying to really highlight that this is a problem. But now we're really seeing some... (laughs) some statistics and some research coming out that I'm calling this a a paediatric health emergency. Associate Professor Sarah Egan from Curtin University is a clinical psychologist who's long been researching eating disorders. She says while there's more recognition now of young boys experiencing such disorders, the vast majority are young women and girls. Certainly within our data set, for example, we maybe have 5% of the sample would be um, males and 95% female. So, you know, it's still predominantly something you would say that affects young girls, but it's there's more recognition now um, that it's not just um, girls or females. It can be from six or seven years of age and, and upwards. So, yeah, it's um, I think it's alarming because most of us don't think of children of that age of having an eating disorder, but it perhaps 
presents a little differently. They maybe don't voice some of the things you might expect a teenager to say, for example, that they're trying to lose weight or they want to look good or things like that. Um, but it can certainly be the start of it. And a lot of it is just picking it up from around them, from society um, and so on. That's something playing on the minds of many young parents who've spent the day picnicking in the Parramatta Parklands in Western Sydney. Roderick, what's this? Hey? Yeah. Alastair and Hayley are raising two young boys with the hope of reinforcing body positive messages. I hadn't thought about it. Now that you're talking about it, I would probably think about it more for females. If we had we have two boys, not you know, not two girls, but um, yeah, certainly as they get older, they'll probably be you know something something to think about. Yeah, I think it's not as I don't think about it as much possibly because they're boys. It might be more of something to think about if, if they were girls, but I don't know. It might be different in when they're teenagers. Livia's son is about to turn four and feels confident he'll grow up in a society more embracing of all body types. Yeah, admittedly, I feel it's probably more of an issue for women, girls and women, but I do, of course, it's important for little boys as well, yeah. What relationship did you have with your body when you were a younger younger woman? Well, unlike most people who went on diets and stuff, I never went on a diet in my entire life because I was always very skinny. And I know some people were like envious of that, but actually it was kind of annoying because people would always have comments like, oh, why don't you just eat more? And um, why are you so skinny? And, but I do think it's changing because I know in my day, um, all those girl teenage magazines that are about, you know, looking a certain way, um, certain size, and also all the cover models were um, white Australians and I'm, Asian background, but now I feel it's much more diverse, so that's great. The new Australian of the Year, Taryn Brumfit, insists her message isn't about promoting obesity, rather to shake off the obsession of weight loss. We know that you're more likely to move your body, to nourish your body, you're less likely to smoke, you're less likely to drink, you're more likely to put on sunscreen. Like All of the benefits of embracing your body and loving your body or just being okay with your body, you know, body being neutral about your body is just, just as powerful. That's the new Australian of the Year, Taryn Brumfit. Gavin Coote with that report. Australia Day has been celebrated by many today with citizenship ceremonies and special honours for people who've served their communities. There are also rallies in capital cities with people decrying January the 26th as Invasion Day. The Prime Minister has spoken of Australia's success as a nation with tens of thousands of years of history and a rich migrant tradition. But Mr Albanese says he's got no intention of changing the date of Australia Day and is instead focusing on the campaign for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Here's David Sparks. In the nation's capital, a day of celebration. Migrant families from all over the world took to the stage, taking the next step on a long journey. From now on, they're Australian citizens. Speaking after the ceremony, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese spoke of how special Australia Day is. Today's a day that's important to celebrate who we are, but also to recognise uh, the changing nature of Australia. When it comes to the debate over whether the 26th of January is the right day for a national celebration, Anthony Albanese says that issue is nowhere near as important as the campaign for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. He was asked today if he wants to shift Australia Day. No, I I have no proposals. I I have one major change that that I want 
can you imagine next year the counterfactual? Either we will have a constitution on Australia Day that recognises Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as our first peoples in this country. That will be an act of reconciliation. Or if the referendum is not successful, I think people know that that will not be a moment uh, that shows respect for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Opposition leader Peter Dutton also believes January 26th is a special day. We live in the greatest country in the world and Australia Day is a day to celebrate our multicultural communities and the citizens that we've just sworn in at this ceremony are our latest citizens and we had ceremonies around the country. Uh, we have a proud British heritage and we have uh, an incredibly proud Indigenous heritage in this country and we celebrate the three limbs of what it is to be an Australian. New polling released by Roy Morgan this week shows 64% of adults want Australia Day to stay on the 26th of January. But there's a generational difference. For those aged under 25, 56% want a change of date. At Mullaloo Beach in Perth North, people are making the most of a day off. We meet Mary from Ireland, who's lived here for seven years. This is definitely not a day to celebrate in my world. Um, I think it's a day that we need to acknowledge what's happened here. This is a really, really hard day for a lot of people in this country and I think the people who it isn't a hard day for need to recognise and pay our respects to what's happened. On the same beach is Paul wearing an Australian flag shirt. I think it's a fantastic day um, and it's unfortunately uh, kind of been politicised but I believe uh, January 26th is uh, the day to celebrate Australia Day. And I understand why you know people want to change it. We're constantly told it's going to make people feel better and end some of the trauma that has been put onto Aboriginal people in Australia. And I, I totally understand where they're coming from. However, it's not really, um, it's not really going to do anything substantial. Protesters marking what they call Invasion Day held rallies around the country. Paul Silver, whose uncle David Dangay died in custody, had this to say about treating January 26th as a day to be celebrated. And as for this day, the 26th of January, we don't and will not celebrate land theft, murder and rape on the 26th of January or any day. This marks 235 years since the British ship arrived at Botany Bay. They invaded our lands, stealing it, killing our extended family members, turning our warriors into slaves until they die. Paul Silver in Sydney, David Sparks with that report. Many of the so-called Invasion Day rallies today included calls for Australians to vote no in the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Some prominent Aboriginal activists and leaders have slammed the proposed advisory body as just a cosmetic fix that will only offer First Nations people symbolic representation. Bridget Fitzgerald prepared this report. Do we want to become an advisory body to the colonial system? Green Senator Lydia Thorpe addresses the Invasion Day rally in Melbourne. We deserve better. (laughs) 
The Jalboran Gunai Gunditjmara woman and Green spokesperson on First Nations issues has publicly opposed the Indigenous voice to Parliament. This week, Senator Thorpe brokered a deal with the Greens party room that allows her to vote against the establishment of the advisory body if she wishes to do so. She used the Melbourne protest to call for treaty to be prioritised over the voice. We have to rid racism and heal this country, bring everyone together through a sovereign treaty. The Voice, an Indigenous advisory body, would help guide the Australian government on policies that relate to First Nations people. With a referendum to enshrine the Voice in the Constitution to be held later this year, some prominent Aboriginal leaders and advocates have come out in opposition. Lipstick on a pig. Professor Gary Foley is a long-time advocate for Indigenous issues and was one of the co-founders of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in 1972. He too called for treaty and urged the crowd at the Melbourne Invasion Day rally to vote no to the voice. A measure that will ultimately only be cosmetic. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says First Nations people need to be recognised in the constitution and dismissed calls for treaty before voice as partisan politics. And I say this, if not now, when? If not now, when will this change occur? And if not the people of Australia this year, uh, who? Senior Australian of the Year Tom Kalmer helped design the process for a voice to Parliament and has questioned the motivation of politicians like Lydia Thorpe and opposition leader Peter Dutton calling for more detail on the proposal. He says support for treaty shouldn't cancel out the support for the voice. I, I feel a bit offended, you know, when we're starting to determine that the, the support or, or the determination of whether you want to support or not support a voice is predetermined by by whether you, you, you address some of the other issues in Indigenous affairs. The call for uh, treaties before voice is nonsensical. Jill Gallagher is a Gundagmara woman and the former Treaty Advancement Commissioner in Victoria, where the process to establish a treaty with its First Nations people has already begun. And that treaty process is being guided by a state-based independent Indigenous advisory body, or Voice to Parliament, the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. Their role was to set up and establish a treaty negotiating framework with the state government. In Victoria, there'll be a statewide treaty which will cover major structural changes. Like treaties in Canada and New Zealand, it will help enable self-determination and self-governance. For example, allocating a certain number of seats in the Victorian Parliament for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander votes. But the process will also allow for treaties to be established between government and specific traditional owner groups. It means empowerments, it means reparations, it means truth-telling, it means acknowledgements. Jill Gallagher says having an Indigenous advisory body, a voice to Parliament, has been vital to Victoria's treaty process. And she says opposition to the voice at today's rallies is disappointing. I wish I had the opportunity to, to be invited to speak uh, at the rally. It would have been amazing. I would have went and uh, spoke. But my, what I would have said was, we need to be empowered. We need to have a voice to parliaments and we need it enshrined in the uh, constitution.
Former Victorian Treaty Advancement Commissioner Jill Gallagher ending Bridget Fitzgerald's report. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, Russians likely to compete at next year's Paris Olympics, but under a neutral flag. It's an outrage, though, for the Ukrainian diaspora. The fact is that we have a war on. We have the oppressor, which is Russia and Putin, killing, maiming, raping, blowing up buildings. And now we want a level playing field in terms of the uh, Olympics. We think it's disgraceful. Well, how many doses of a COVID vaccine have you had and are you keen for another one? The government's immunisation body will soon decide whether to approve a fifth dose and they're facing increasing pressure from experts and the public. Isabel Masali reports. John is one of those people who has seemingly escaped catching COVID in the last three years and he doesn't plan on changing that. We did all the right things. Uh, My wife and I, we're both the same, done four but we were, you know, we were social when we could be and we haven't got it. So, yeah, I guess I'm a believer in, in the inoculation. The pair just returned from an overseas trip and they also love going to concerts. They consider themselves healthy, but they are concerned about waning immunity. You know, it only has a, a, a lifespan of X amount of, of time and they do tend to fade away was the term I think they used yeah, look, I really like breathing and I, I don't want to not, not be breathing. So I, I'd be high up in the queue to, um, to grab, a, grab another one if it, it was coming along. A fourth dose is recommended for over 50s, while those aged over 30 can have it if they choose. When it comes to fifth doses, only adults with severely compromised immune systems are eligible. But that eligibility could soon widen, with the Health Minister saying he expects further advice very early this year from the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation. Ahead of that decision, a group of about 250 Australians have been urging ATAGI to approve that fifth dose for the broader public. Sue Jennings is one of them. We just want them to live up to their promise to leave no one behind. We're going to hold them to that promise. Um, And so we've been writing letters for the last six months. We've written so many letters to the government, um, media, schools, patient advocacy groups. And at the moment, we are targeting ATAGI um, because they are the decision makers. They are the ones making the recommendations. Sue Jennings has lupus, though she doesn't qualify for a fifth dose. Her daughter is also vulnerable. I mean, their guidelines say that if you haven't been infected or vaccinated in the last six months, that you're at a greater risk of poor outcomes. And that's my daughter and I, in the last six months, we've had no infection because we've been careful and we have no vac- uh, no vaccination because we're not eligible for me for a fifth dose or her for a fourth dose. So it's, it's a worrying time right now. Cassandra Berry is a professor of immunology at Murdoch University. Yes, I'd like to see Australia open up the eligibility to over 50-year-olds. But if those individuals not fitting those age brackets desire a vaccine and meet the three months interval, I think they should be allowed to receive one. As long as we have a vaccine supply and we are still maintaining equity for vaccination in other countries and, and helping them with distribution, the, um, there are no cons. She's also raising concerns about waning immunity. We're wearing our immune systems all the time like a life jacket, but 
if they're not inflated, they're not going to be much use if a big wave hits us and we you know, capsize from a boat. So having these updated vaccines just help inflate our life jacket and give us a better chance of surviving and helping others around us that can't be vaccinated. She says boosters are swinging towards bivalence and a new study out today from the University of Texas and Pfizer shows the new bivalent vaccines are superior. The people who received the bivalent vaccine had much higher levels of neutralising antibody to the monovalent. In a nutshell, the bivalent vaccine proved to be superior to the monovalent. It was more immunogenic and offered also a greater widespread breadth of immune responses to the different Omicron variants. In a statement, the Department of Health said Otagi continues to meet frequently to assess the latest evidence both here and internationally, but it does not currently recommend a fifth dose beyond people who are severely immunocompromised. Isabel Masali reporting. Australia's latest inflation figure even shocked many economists. Over the 12 months to the December quarter, it went up 7.8%. Warren Hogan is an economic advisor to Judo Bank. He's among the economists calling for the Reserve Bank to take drastic action to bring prices down. Well, I think there should be a, a serious discussion about um, a 50-point move. Uh, they pivoted early back to a 25-point increase before any other central bank in, in the world did. Um, and that means now our interest rates are much lower than many similar economies. And of course, now we've seen this inflation is a little bit more stubborn and problematic than we thought. And I think just as important, the economy is proving quite resilient to the rate hikes we saw in 2022 if the consumer spending feedback we've had from the Christmas New Year period is anything to go by. So I think there'll be a serious discussion of a 50, uh, and I think they've got to get that cash rate up towards 4% at some stage this year. That's going to worry a lot of people, though, already struggling with their mortgages and, of course, renters who are paying their landlords' mortgages with soaring rents. What do you say to those people? I think the, any further interest rate increases that we see in 2023 are likely to be reversed with rate cuts next year. This is a matter of weathering a storm. I think the level of interest rates now, whether that's a sort of 5 or 6% mortgage rate or the cash rate at 3 is probably about the average level for the next three or four years. So it's a matter of weathering this storm. We've seen it many times over the decades where there's short periods where interest rates go up. The other point to note is that this inflation is creating a lot of suffering now. It's putting huge pressure on low-income families, fixed-income retirees, and really it's a payoff. It's a payoff between the impact of higher interest rates versus the ongoing impact of high inflation. And this isn't new. This, this inflation has been elevated and real wages have been falling for, for almost three years now. So I think there's an urgency to get rid of this inflation. It's causing real pain in our community. Um, and the, and the, the price of that, of course, is a, is, a, is a period where interest rates remain elevated. You've even floated the idea, I think, that Australia might need a recession to bring inflation down. What sort of inflation? recession are you envisaging? Well, I think this is an important distinction. That there's, there's lots of different ways that um, an economy can experience recession. A technical recession, two quarters of negative economic growth, can be very mild and short-lived with a, with a rapid recovery. And that there is a very high probability that we'll experience something like that in the next 12 to 18 months. What we must avoid is allowing inflation to be entrenched for the economy to, to burst back to life and push inflation up again in the year's time. And for interest rates to go up two or three percentage points from here, that would all but ensure 
a deep and damaging recession, similar to what we saw in the early 90s, similar to what the US saw in the GFC. And of course, that must be avoided. Would a short, mild recession, though, as you term it, could that be done without widespread job losses? I think it can because what we're seeing, and it's a problem we've got in the economy, is more demand for labour than we've got people. And, of course, the initial response is to increase immigration, and that brings its own issues such as housing and so forth. I think what you'll see with higher interest rates and a slowing in the economy in 2023 is what I'd call the notional demand for labour being damaged. There will be some job losses. There are inevitably going to be some businesses that don't survive this downturn. But I don't think we're going to see mass unemployment. I think we may see a half to one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate. Now, that's not great. But if that is the price we pay to avoid a four or five percentage point increase in unemployment over the next few years, then again, I think it's a payoff that's it's worth taking. All the evidence shows, whether it's job vacancies or job ads, that the demand for labour is well above the supply and that initial slowdown in the economy will actually see some people lose jobs, but there will be other jobs available. So the effects on unemployment will be a lot less than you would have seen historically as the economy slows. So in conjunction with another interest rate rise from the Reserve Bank, what would you like to see the federal government doing now? Look, the, 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 the federal and state governments are still adding to demand in the economy and um, it was a little bit disappointing that the government didn't take the opportunity to tighten up in the October budget when the economy was doing well. I know they were worried about the world economy and they very much positioned it that way. But often overlooked in all of this is the state governments and, and particularly the big eastern seaboard states are, are spending, um, investing and spending. And that, of course, is adding to the RBA's problems and only puts more pressure on interest rates. So it would be good to see all the governments of Australia take their foot off the accelerator a bit. But unfortunately, the, the politics of it makes that very difficult. And it's not something that would happen quickly. Unfortunately, the Reserve Bank's going to be left to carry the can here, both literally and probably politically. Warren Hogan is an economic advisor to Judo Bank. Well, the International Olympic Committee seems to be forging ahead with plans to allow Russian and Belarusian athletes to compete at next year's Olympic Games in Paris. The IOC says no athlete should be prevented from competing because of their passport. But human rights groups say Russia should be punished for its actions in Ukraine and its athletes shouldn't be celebrated on the world stage. Rachel Mealy reports. As the tennis played out on court, pro-Russian demonstrators chanted on the steps of the Rod Laver Arena while one man waved a flag bearing the face of Vladimir Putin. Victoria Police later confirmed four men were evicted from the event. The Australian Open made the decision to allow Russian and Belarusian athletes to compete at this year's event and now the International Olympic Committee looks set to follow suit. The IOC says athletes would compete under a neutral flag and in no way represent their state. Stefan Romaniu is the co-chair of the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organisations. He says the Australian community should be urging the IOC to rethink its plans. The fact is that we have a war on. We have the oppressor, which is Russia and Putin, killing, maiming, raping, blowing up buildings, uh, having no respect for international accords. And now we want a level playing field in terms of the uh, Olympics. We think it's disgraceful. He says Australians can find it hard to say no to individual players in the sporting arena. We can't go half-cocked in this 
I know some people find it hard to understand that somehow sport is uh, something that we just go and do and everybody's happy and we watch. No, that there's, there are people dying. If you look at the Ukrainian situation, we have sports people on the front in Ukraine. We have sports people who have died fighting on the front. We have sports facilities being blown up and we're trying to say that sports are leveller. Not on. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke to the French leader this week about the issue. He says he told President Macron that athletes from Russia should have no place at the Olympic Games in Paris. But now the International Olympic Committee says it's pressing on because excluding them doesn't fit with the ethos of the Olympic movement. Keith Rathbone is a senior lecturer of history at Macquarie University. It's obvious that the IOC uh, and other sporting organizations are getting a lot of pressure to uh, allow Russian and Belarusian athletes into their competitions to compete. And I think it's a bit unprecedented and unfortunate for them to do so, considering that the war is still going on. I think that sporting organizations should hold firm in their boycott of Russian and Belarusian athletes. He says sporting events like the Olympics amplify nationalism, even if athletes are told to be neutral. The IOC has tried to deal with this problem for a long time. How do they deal with countries that are bad actors internationally? And generally, they have excluded them until such time as the war is over. That's happened with, with Nazi Germany and with Imperial Japan and with other countries that had waged war before. Former Olympic swimmer and human rights lawyer Nikki Dryden says the Olympic Committee needs to reconsider. The IOC had an opportunity to support the United Nations, to support international sanctions. And instead of taking the hard stand, the IOC has enabled Putin. And if they don't back down from this decision, I do believe the IOC will have blood on their hands. Human rights lawyer Nikki Dryden ending that report from Rachel Mealy. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Don't forget you can find all our interviews and reports on the PM webpage and catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. And that's where you'll find ABC News Daily with Sam Hawley each weekday morning. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. This is the year Australians will be asked to vote in a referendum, the first in 20 years. This time we'll be voting yes or no to giving Indigenous Australians a voice in our parliament. As the complex debate gets underway, today my colleague Dan Borcher on what we'll see in the months ahead and how to navigate your way through it. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.